You may be seated. If you would please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus. We are in Leviticus 5 this morning. We will be looking at Leviticus 5 verses 1 through 13 this morning. We took a brief break from our sermon series in Leviticus last week as Eric Mabbitt filled the pulpit and gave us a sermon on Genesis 17 and the importance of signs. Uh, we now pick up on our sermon series, our morning sermon series in Leviticus. And you may recall we have been in really sort of a three-part mini-sermon series within the grand sermon series of Leviticus on the sin offering. Uh, we have looked at uh, the um, reality of sin, uh, the fight against sin, and this morning we will look at the guilt uh, of sin. Uh, So with that introduction out of the way, let us give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired and life-giving word. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanliness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it, And realizes his guilt. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation. For the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest, who shall offer first the one for the sin offering. He shall wring its head from its neck, but shall never sever it completely. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Then he shall offer a second for a burnt offering according to the rule. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven." But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things. 
and he shall be forgiven. And the remainder shall be for the priest, as in the grain offering. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. I failed to mention at the introduction, though we read through verses 1 through 13, our primary focus this morning will be on verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come with the full knowledge that it is only by your Holy Spirit that we can rightly discern and rightly divide your word of truth. And so we pray, O Father, that we as the recipients of your word uh, would be filled with your spirit, uh, that you would write your truth upon our hearts, that you would conform us this morning into the image of your Son, and that you would help us to see Uh, that we are guilty sinners in your sight, and that we are to own that guilt that is before you and your holy law. Uh, But we pray, O Father, that you would not leave us in the miseries of our guilt here this morning, but that you, by your Spirit, would draw our hearts to Jesus Christ, who is our sin offering, who is our purification offering, who purifies and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Give us Christ here this morning. Edify us, your saints, as we sit under your word now, both read and preached. Do this, we ask, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A recent article in Psychology Today magazine, writing on the subject matter of guilt, says this, Guilt is first and foremost an emotion. Guilt is an internal state. In the overall scheme of emotions, guilt is in the general category of negative feeling states. It's one of the sad emotions, which also include agony, grief, and loneliness. Uh, This statement from Psychology Today uh, gives, I think, a good insight into the way guilt is often understood in our culture. Guilt is, first and foremost, an emotion. It is a feeling. It is an internal state. And with our culture today, guilt is often considered a misguided feeling that is produced by misguided cultural norms and biases. And what is most important for people today is to rid themselves of this feeling of guilt that has come from a particular cultural norm. In other words, for today's culture, guilt is often seen as a misguided emotion that is brought on by misguided cultural persuasions. And the culture in many ways must change in order for people to not feel guilty anymore. But when we look at Leviticus and the sin offering, what we find is a completely different understanding of guilt than the one our world today so often champions. We have a constant refrain, as we have seen throughout our study of the sin offering, that we see here again in our passage, and it is the refrain when he realizes his guilt. We see it again in our passage here this morning in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5, when he realizes his guilt. Now, this guilt that the sin offering is referring to is not a subjective, internal feeling, 
but rather an objective reality that is due to the transgression of God's law. For the scriptures as a whole, and as we have seen throughout our study of Leviticus, guilt is not first and foremost an emotion. Guilt is first and foremost a fact, a reality, an objective state that sinners find themselves in due to their breaking of God's holy law. Now, the past two sermons on the sin offering, as I've already mentioned, we looked at the reality of sin. Uh, We looked at the fight against sin. Uh, But here this morning, what I want us to see the sin offering teaches us is it teaches us about the guilt of sin. And I want us to see, first, the guilt of inaction, second, the guilt of impurity, and third, the guilt of imprudence. The guilt of inaction, the guilt of impurity, and the guilt of imprudence. First, the guilt of inaction. Uh, Verse 1 speaks of a situation where an individual has witnessed a crime or has knowledge concerning a crime that has been committed but fails to come and and give the information that he has. Uh, And this is something that is Uh, clearly condemned within Israel. Uh, Within Israel, failure to testify was a serious sin because it led to the denial of justice. And the people of God were to be a people committed to justice because they were to reflect the righteous and just God that had redeemed them and bought them from their bondage in Egypt. And a major obstacle for the Israelites in seeking to display and manifest this justice was often the sin of inaction, what is often referred to by theologians as the sin of omission. When we speak or seek to define sin, we often make a distinction between two different kinds of sin— We make a distinction between what we call the sins of commission and the sins of omission. Uh, Sins of commission are those sins that we actively do, uh, that uh, which God says we ought not to do. Sins of commission are those things we actively do, which God tells us that we ought not to do. And this really, I think, if we were to be honest with ourselves, and for most people generally both within and without of the church, this is the primary way we think of sin, doing that which we have been commanded not to do. Uh, Consider the Ten Commandments. Eight of the Ten Commandments begin with those words, you shall not. The sin of commission is the active participation in the things that God says you ought not to do. However, there is also what we call the sins of omission. These are sins that are committed when we don't do that which is required of us from God. Uh, Within Israel and with the Ten Commandments, the shall nots of the ten always carried with it an implied you shall. You shall not commit adultery. You shall love your wife and have eyes only for her. You shall not steal. 
you shall cherish your own property and give generously with what you have. You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, might, and strength. In other words, we stand in a state of guilt before the Lord, both for what we actively do and what we fail to actively do. Consider the words that Jesus says he will utter to those that he will judge in Matthew 25 when he comes again. Jesus there says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For when I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will say, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or in prison, or sick and did not minister to you? As you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now, it's worth considering here that the sin that Jesus uses as the reason for the condemnation of the wicked is the sin of omission. It is the sin of inactivity, what the Westminster Shorter Catechism calls a lack of conformity to the law of God. Yet I think if we were honest with ourselves here this morning, uh, we tend to gauge, I know I am guilty of this as well, we tend to gauge our battle against sin based solely on what it is we have ceased from doing. I used to do this evil thing, but now I no longer do it. And so I'm innocent before the Lord. And yes, that's true. We are to consider the sins of commission. And we are to consider the things that we've done and, and stop doing them if they are evil in God's sight. But the gospel asks a follow-up question. What have you replaced it with? Yes, you have separated yourself from darkness, but have you become light? Yes, you have put off the old man according to the flesh, but have you put on the new man according to the to the Spirit. What both the Old Testament and the New Testament teaches us is that God redeems his people not only so that they will no longer do the things he commands them not to do, but so that they will manifest his righteousness, his justice, his mercy and compassion by themselves being merciful, compassionate, and righteous. What Leviticus and Jesus teaches us is that we will be held accountable to the law of God just as much for the things we don't do as for the things we do. The sins both of commission and omission render us equally guilty before the Lord and before his law. Second, the guilt of impurity the guilt of impurity. Verse 2 and 3 deals with those who fail to deal properly with ritual impurity. Those who become ritually unclean enter into a state that would disqualify them from participating in a certain ritual 
activities. One could become ritually unclean by touching the carcass of an unclean animal or by touching some form of human uncleanliness. Now, these details of the human uncleanliness will be laid out in greater detail for us in uh, chapter 15 uh, when we get there. Uh, Verse 3 indicates that the uncleanliness is hidden from them, and then they become aware of it. And the unclean person then is guilty because they have failed to address their uncleanliness which is essentially making them impure and unholy before a pure and holy God. Now, it is this theme of impurity that we see both here and that we have seen previously that has caused many to refer to the sin offering also as the purification offering, the purification offering, because it is this offering that is most associated with purifying the sinner that stain that the sinner has due to their sin. It is this offering that is most closely associated uh, with the means by which God offers in in removing and purifying the individual's stain of sin. However, it is also called the purification offering because of the emphasis on not only the purifying of the individual themselves, but the purifying of the tabernacle. You may recall a few weeks back when we looked at the priest and the leader of Israel and the common people when they offered sin offerings and what that blood, which was the cleansing agent, where it was applied for the priest. If he sinned and he gave a sin offering, that blood would be applied and thrown onto the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. It was the leader in Israel or one of the common people. The blood would be thrown on the altar of the burnt offering. Uh, In other words, the, the blood, the cleansing agent, is being thrown atop the tabernacle of God. In both cases, indicating that God's sanctuary was made unclean by the sin of the sinner. Now remember what we have been saying throughout our study of Leviticus, what the tabernacle really represented. It represented God's presence in the midst of his people. It was the place, it was the home of the Lord where he would meet with his covenant people and and share in fellowship with them, union and communion with his people. And he cannot have his home be stained with the impurity and unholiness of sin. In other words, the impurity of sin not only affects the sinner, it affects the meeting place of God. It affects fellowship between the worshiper and Yahweh. And it takes the presence of God away from the worshiper because God cannot determine himself to be in a place that is impure and unholy. So the purification offering is often called that not only because it purifies us, the individual, but it purifies the meeting place so that God can meet with the worshiper there. Think for a moment of someone standing trial for a crime, and they are convicted and and are guilty according to the judge and jury. And what is often the punishment is that they are taken away into prison. 
separated from society, separated from the presence of their family and their friends. But with sin, which makes us impure and renders us guilty before the Lord, the punishment from God is separation from his presence. His meeting place is made unclean and unfit for fellowship with him. There's a rather, I think, unsettling notion today within many Christian circles that holiness and purity is really just an option and not a necessity for Christians. What is important is that I am forgiven of all my sins in Christ, and the idea of holiness is really dependent upon the individual. Some individuals just are prone to holy activity. That's just how they are wired. Some people are more more prone to holiness and others are not. What really matters in the end is that we are all forgiven, and we in the end will all share in the loving presence of God in heaven, whether we have made the pursuit of holiness and purity something important within our lives. Kevin DeYoung, writing on this false notion of heaven and God's presence, says these words, even if you could enter heaven without holiness, what would you do? What joy would you feel there? What holy man or woman of God would you sit down with for fellowship? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their character is not your character. What they love, you do not love. If you dislike a holy God now, why would you want to be with him forever? If worship does not capture your attention at present, what makes you think it will thrill you in some heavenly future? If you are seeking the presence of God while swimming in impurity and unholiness, the God that you are seeking the presence from is not the God of Leviticus. The guilt of impurity and unholiness places us in a prison house where we are severed from the loving fellowship and presence of a holy God. If we long for heaven, if we long for more union and communion and joy with the Lord, we are to long for and we are to pursue holiness and purity. Third, the guilt of imprudence. The guilt of imprudence. Verse 4 speaks of someone taking a rash oath. When an Israelite would take an oath, Uh, oftentimes they would invoke the name of the Lord in their oath and ask the Lord to bring judgment on them if they were lying or if they ended up failing to keep that oath. Failure to keep an oath then was to profane the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, whose name they invoked. Godly Israelites then kept their oaths, whether it was good for them or whether it harmed them. Uh, This word here that the ESV at least translates as evil uh, is really better translated as when it hurts, when it hurts. Uh, It is not suggesting that God would want an individual to follow through on a sinful vow, but it is rather suggesting that the individual is to follow through on that vow even when it 
harms them, even when it hurts. Once again, we see that this rash oath is hidden or forgotten by the individual. And once the guilt of the rash vow is realized, the sinner is to offer a sin offering. And so where the emphasis really lies here is not on the oath as such, but on the rashness of the oath, uttering rash and foolish things, saying that which has not been thought through, but just saying something really in the heat of the moment. In fact, so rash and thoughtless is the oath that the person isn't aware that they even did anything foolish until much later. And isn't that so often the case when we just speak without thinking in the heat of the moment? We're not even aware that we've said something so foolish. Scripture time and time again will lay out the importance of being careful with our words. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. We live today in a culture where we are motivated to constantly be jabbing away with our tongue. We have blogs, social media, Twitter accounts where we are constantly encouraged to open up our traps and simply be heard. Words are many today in our culture, and Proverbs 10:19 proves to be true. As a result, transgression and guilt before the Lord is not lacking. We have lost in many ways in our culture the art and the prudence of shutting up. We just don't know how to shut up in our culture of thinking before we speak. What is most important is that we speak. And thinking is really much like holiness, just an option that I can choose if I want. But what is important is that I have a voice, that I have an opinion, no matter how harebrained and foolish it might be. Unless we think this is something that stands outside of the church only, we as Christians are so often sucked into this environment, aren't we? But we think so long as we say, quote, unquote, Christian things without thinking, somehow we're innocent. Some of the most horrifying and foolish blogs you will run into are from, quote, unquote, Christian bloggers. We are filled to the brim today with thoughtless, careless words. And when we speak thoughtless, rash, imprudent words. We are guilty before the Lord. Now, in all of this, you might be saying to yourself, I'm guilty of all of this. I'm inactive. I'm impure. I'm imprudent. Is all lost for me? What can I possibly do? Well, notice verse 5 says that the individual is to confess their sin and bring their sin offering to the Lord for an atonement. 
what the Lord calls every Israelite to do when they realize their guilt before the Lord is confess their sin and offer sacrifice for atonement. And it is no different for you and me, brothers and sisters, as new covenant Christians living here today. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what is different for us as New Covenant Christians is that when we come to our God, our Father in heaven, we do not come accompanied by a female lamb or female goat, but we come in and through and in the name of Jesus Christ, laying our hands atop of him by faith, who is our purification offering. And when we come in and through Christ, God the Father hears us. And he is faithful and just to forgive us. Have you today realized that you are guilty of inaction? Have you today realized that you are guilty of impurity and unholiness before the Lord? Have you today realized that you are guilty of imprudence and careless and thoughtless words? What the Lord is calling you to do today is to cling to Christ by faith. Come to him in the name of Christ, who is your purification offering, and confess your sins. The Christian life, in many ways, is one where we ought to pursue action. We ought to pursue purity. We ought to pursue prudence. But as we pursue it, we will stumble and we will fall. And God, by his grace, through the illumination of his Holy Spirit, will bring to us into the minds of our hearts that we have sinned and we are guilty before him. And we are not to tarry in coming to our knees and confessing our sins in the name of our purification offering, Jesus Christ. And he is faithful and just to forgive you. Brothers and sisters, pursue action. Pursue holiness and purity. Pursue prudence and and careful language in your speech. But in your inevitable stumblings, when the Spirit brings to you that knowledge of your guilt. Do not tarry in coming before the Lord and confessing your sin. He will in and through Christ forgive us. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that we do have Jesus Christ who stands before us. Yet, O Lord, as we have seen here this morning, that in no way leaves us uh, to consider holiness an option, but it is because Christ has redeemed us from sin that we are to live unto you and unto your holy law. But, O Lord, we know that we stand here today guilty of inaction, guilty of those sins, of, of those those 
antagonists in the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan. We often go to the other side of the road. We are guilty of, of, of impurity, so often doing the things that we did before you had called us to yourself and not taking seriously your holiness. And we are guilty, O oh Lord, of using careless and thoughtless words. And we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, and we confess that we are guilty sinners, and we cling to him who is our great intercessor by faith here this morning, and ask that you forgive us. Speak to our conscience, purify and cleanse the consciences of each of your saints here this morning, and ready us in and through Christ Jesus to go and to be active, holy, and careful Christians as we seek to honor you and your son. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I invite you to stand for our closing hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me.